Now we're talking statues and stories with Adam Levinson. This is Mac on the Rock, changing my caps to constitutional history and the founding of this great country. And we have the 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 fort. It's really fortunate for a person like me who loves uh, constitutional history to actually have someone who is of the same uh, persuasion, but much better at it. So, Adam, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic. How's everybody? Well, you know, we just had a, a, a fantastic show where uh, we talked about the essence of impeachment and how dangerous it is to even use it as a threat, as Jefferson did uh, in the case of um, um, Justice uh, Chase. So uh, be careful what you wish for, and uh, the Democrats should just back off and get back to the business of the people because it doesn't look good for them if they even try it. Uh, just Americans... Uh, the Clinton affair was a classic example of the Republicans blowing that idea. So just don't go there was our major theme. And we had you know a couple of callers that talked about immigration and stuff like that. But the, the gist of the conversation was, um, you know, his public speaking in, in law schools um, in the Ukraine where he talked about, you know, impeachment is not something we should play around with. So we'll get back into in some other time, but right now, what do you have for us? What is our what are our listeners going to hear now? Okay, so we are going to. I don't want to say build upon your last hour, but the focus tonight, and this is more background for listeners. We we talk about the founders, and we talk about during the statutes and stories hour. We talk about the founding generation, and we talk about the 1700s and the 1800s. So as you know, I don't talk about modern politics, but it informs modern politics when you understand some of the background. So the subject of today's discussion is not impeachment, but it's a related subject. The subject of today's discussion is executive privilege, and you will see. And by the way. I agree with your your statement that be careful what you ask for because one party's in power today and then they're out of party tomorrow. So this is the dance that takes place with executive privilege. So we're going to go back to the roots of executive privilege. And let me ask the two of you, do you want to start with the theory and explain what executive privilege is, or do you want to go into the examples of how executive privilege was used and how the founders, uh, you know, applied it in in the early days of the country? So do you want to start with the theory or do you want to start with the facts first? I think the the examples is probably the best way to go because it's a little bit more entertaining for the listener. And then you can back into the theory behind these uh, these examples because people can can contrast that while they're listening. Fantastic. So we'll save the theory for later if we have time, and we'll delve right into the facts. And this gets to the purpose of why we do this for, for this hour. And the part of it is to give an education about uh, the Constitution, how lucky we are that, uh, that we're such a great country with such a great history. But also, I also like to talk about the website, statutesandstories.com. And this is a website that uses primary sources and uses, I like to say, diaries and correspondence and letters back and forth between the founders to tell the story of American statutes and these stories about how the law works. So we go back to that period of time in the 1700s. So here, let's start with the, there are five examples I'm going to use tonight, and then we can go into the theory behind executive privilege. And I think you're right that as we talk about these examples, it'll flesh out the reason for the doctrine. So the examples we're going to talk about, and it's interesting because there's a pattern that I've discovered, and this isn't something you know brilliant, this is just the dates. So the first instance of the use of executive privilege was in 1792, so we'll be talking about the St. Clair incident, and this has to do with the North West Indian War from the 17 or the early 1700s, 1792 was the first instance where executive privilege was uh, was thrown out, and was when I say thrown out, was was looked 
that and evaluate it, the first use of executive privilege or potential use. The second example we're going to be talking about was with Gouverneur Morris, who was the ambassador to France, and there was a request made for Morris's letters back and forth to Washington. That was in 1794. So the pattern I'm going to show you is that executive privilege was popping up every two years during the Washington administration. So first in 1792 with the St. Clair incident, then 1794 with Governor Morris, where Congress is asking for his correspondence. Then two years later, which is the Jays Treaty that we've talked about in prior evenings. So during the debate over Jays Treaty and the funding of the treaty in the House of Representatives, once again, executive privilege was an issue that came up. And then two, two years later, so again, this two-year time period, it's almost like a pendulum every two years as a crisis or an incident that uh, leads to this shift and this balance back and forth, this, this delicate dance about executive privilege. So that's the XYZ affair under President Adams. And then we'll skip ahead to... Aaron Burr, and this was a trial where he was on trial for treason in 1807, and once again, executive privilege became an issue when documents were requested from President Jefferson. So we'll be talking about these five incidents, and we can go into as much detail as you want. And it's also interesting that executive privilege, and this is a little bit of theory, you have to look at what the facts are of the particular case. And you have to understand what, uh, you know, if, if it's coming from the context of a court hearing or if it's a criminal case or if it's a discussion to approve a treaty. So these are very fact-specific, so you can't necessarily take any of these precedents and in a blanket way apply it to today, but it informs the conversation today, which is why it's useful to understand how executive privilege first came up and then how it's been used and then how the courts have looked at it. And uh, that's the second post, by the way, I'll be doing eventually on statutes and stories. So there's a pending post giving these historical examples, and then I'll be doing a subsequent post talking about the cases. And this Burr case, by the way, was the first instance where a court looked at executive privilege. This is Chief Justice Marshall, so we can get to that later if we have time, the, the cases. And then, of course, the most important executive privilege case, which goes up to the U.S. Supreme Court, was in the 1970s, and that's the U.S. versus Nixon case. So if we have time, we can talk about that also. But today, let's focus, or at least begin, by talking about these instances where executive privilege was used by the founders. And let me give a little bit of background about why you want to look at precedents. And uh, keep in mind, and this gets to the question about why do you keep something secret, uh, so I think it's useful to point out that James Madison, the founder of the Constitution, we've talked about him on other, uh, other nights, uh, he's reported to have said on at least one or more occasion that the Constitution never would have been adopted if the debates had been public. So sometimes secrecy is important, and that's the heart of executive privilege. And uh, by the way, in that U.S. versus Nixon case, the Supreme Court recognized that the framers understood the need for governmental secrecy under certain circumstances. And uh, another reason when we start talking about these historical examples is that the Washington, when he first became president, this is uh, even before he became president, May of 1789, he writes to Madison and he explains that he realizes that everything we do is going to be a first. And this is a quote. He says that, as the first of everything in our situation will serve to establish a precedent, it is devoutly wished on my part that these precedents be fixed on true principles. So when Washington has the first example of executive privilege, when he's wrestling with these concepts, he understands that there's a lot of weight on his shoulders, and he realizes that there will be precedents that are created, and he wants to make sure that he makes his decisions in an informed way after speaking with his cabinet, and does so with the with the appropriate judgment and discretion, because he doesn't want things to accidentally come back to bite him later, or our country for that matter. Uh, here's another quote from Washington, realizing he's going to be the president and everything he does is going to have consequences. This is more of his quote. 
Many things which appear of little importance in themselves at the beginning may have great and durable consequences from their having been established at the commencement of a new general government. So that's going to be one of my points today, that these founding fathers and mothers understood that these decisions that they were reaching would have consequences later on. So they were careful and they, they were debating these issues. And, and some of this, there is no right answer. It has to do with a back and forth or a tug of war or accommodations that the Congress and the president reach when they go through these issues of executive privilege. So that's a little bit of background. So what is this St. Clair incident that I'm describing, the first time that executive privilege came up? And the quick answer was, and I mentioned to it, and I mentioned about it uh, when we started, that there was a uh, there, were, there were hostilities in the Northwest Territory. So after the Revolutionary War, we had not just when I say we the the, the the United States government had not just the 13 original colonies, but we also, after the Treaty of, of 1783, which is the Treaty of Paris, we were, sort of took possession of all of the land up to the Ohio River. Uh, so not the Louisiana Purchase will get us uh, past the Mississippi, but uh, we, we've gotten lots of new territory, which was territory which was previously controlled by Native Americans. So there were hostilities the British were wrapping up or uh, stirring up um, issues with the Native Americans, and there were hostilities. So unfortunately, and depends upon what your perspective is, but in 1791, the U.S. military suffered, and we can quote some of the examples of how they've described it, the Battle of Wabash, or Wabash. And in this battle, during what I described as the Northwest Indian War, it became the most decisive defeat in, some would argue, in the history of the American military. And uh, approximately 50 to 75 percent of the soldiers, uh, and we can talk about uh, what St. Clair, who was the general, uh, was doing or wasn't doing in leading them, but he had had problems. He was not it was not well. He was being carried on a stretcher at various times, and uh, he was not really in a position to be leading the troops. And he walked them into a massacre. So the Indians or Native Americans were laying in wait, and uh, after the Americans were attacked, and it was a surprise attack, basically uh, three-quarters of the American troops wound up uh, just dropping what they had and fleeing, and many of them were, were slaughtered. So what happens? So 17, that was in November of 1791, the Congress finds out about this, uh, really it was a massacre of American troops who were caught unprepared. Uh, it was a shock, and Congress wanted to know what to do about it. And this, by the way, occurred, uh, it was the, let's give credit to the Indians who were fighting, it was Little Turtle who led them, they're defending their land. Uh, some called it the Battle of a Thousand Slain, the Battle of a Thousand Slain, or the St. Clair's Defeat by Little Turtle, as I said, who was one of the leaders of the, of the tribes that were, were being attacked by the Americans. And what does Congress do? They want to investigate. So this is the first time where Congress is saying to the president, we want to figure out what happened and what we can do about it. So what does Washington do when he realizes that Congress is asking for records and they're wanting to do an investigation? So Washington convenes the cabinet and uh, he asks because Congress asked originally Knox. Knox was the Secretary of Defense. So Knox raises the question to Washington, what should I do? And Washington says, well, we need to decide and get together and we'll, we'll make an informed decision. So he convenes the full cabinet. This is March 31st of 1792. And who was in that cabinet? Jefferson, Henry Knox, Secretary of Defense, Jefferson, Secretary of State. Of course, Alexander Hamilton, and I'll try to talk about a Hamilton when I get a chance tonight. And Edmund Randolph is the Attorney General. So this group of giants uh, sit down together. They hold a meeting of the cabinet. And they didn't have minutes in the, from the standpoint of a person recording it. But you did have Jefferson, who was taking notes in Ad the diary. Adam, Adam, I have a question. Adam, Adam I, was, so John Adams was a was the vice president, right? Yes. And he was not at this meeting? 
It's an interesting point. So this this gets to the precedent that Washington established. Washington really used Adams as the head of the Senate and excluded him from these kind of deliberations. So Adams, you know, there are lots of instances where he describes that he was the most uh, useless and uh, I I wish I had them at my fingertips. But, uh, you know, he he bemoaned the fact that uh, he had had no power. There was very little for him to do other than preside over the Senate and cast uh, a tie-breaking vote. So he was out of the, you're right, he was out of these deliberations. He was not the only vice president to say things like that. Uh, FDR's vice president was Jim Nance Gardner from Texas, and he said the office of vice president wasn't worth a bucket of warm spit. There you go. So I think Adams agreed with that, at least initially. So um, you are absolutely correct that Adams was not part of these deliberations. And this is now the first time, March 31st of 1792, where the cabinet is considering this question of whether or not Congress can ask for records, because that's what Congress requested. They requested the correspondence, the orders, uh, the papers of the Department of Defense, because they asked it of Henry Knox, the Secretary of War, uh, so they could investigate, do an inquiry about this massacre of American troops. And it was, as I said, it was, it was, uh, I don't want to call it embarrassing, but it was a slaughter of American troops who walked into a surprise attack and were unprepared. So, and Congress is trying to do its oversight responsibility and try to figure out how do we correct it and make sure it doesn't happen again. Because at this point, the Federalists you know, were still in control and there weren't many people who opposed the Federalists. So I, I think this was a good faith effort by Congress to try to see what they can do to understand what happened and improve <clears throat> the military, etc. And also, you know, the, uh, the let's call it the Hamilton-Washington-Jefferson administration, is asking for more funding for the military. So before they wanted to approve the funding, they wanted to know what happened. So here, again, it's March 31st. The cabinet is convening. Uh, there isn't a stenographer, but you have Jefferson's personal notes in his diary, and he describes how they agreed on four central points. So now I'm going to paraphrase and read from Jefferson's diary. And he says, first, that the House was an inquest and therefore might institute inquiry. So they all agree that the House has the ability. If they want to investigate, they can. So there's no disagreement that the House can do an inquest. Second thing they agree, quoting from Jefferson's diary, is that it might call for papers generally. So they did not disagree that the House might call for written materials or papers, etc. So that's the second thing they all agree on in the cabinet meeting. Third, that the executive ought to communicate such papers, here's what's important, as the public good would permit, and ought to refuse those, the disclosure of which would injure the public. Consequently, and it's a little hard to read his, some of the folks who tried to understand what he was reading, or what he was writing, consequently uh, were to exercise a discretion. So I'm not exactly sure, uh, well, you know, his handwriting, but basically what Washington is being told at this meeting with his unanimous cabinet is that, uh, yes, the House can do an inquest. Secondly, uh, they can ask for papers. But third, the executive when public good would permit and not permit, uh, can can choose not to disclose when it would injure the public. So that's what they all three agree. But they also point out that, um, you know, the request shouldn't go to the Secretary of War, the request should go to the President, who then should answer with his advisors. So that was what they all agreed. And they had a couple cabinet meetings, they went through this process. So here's what I'm going to now answer to you. If you are Washington, or I should say, I should ask you, if you are Washington and you have this embarrassing, it's not a... uh, it's not a pleasant situation where this group of soldiers, and I'll try to figure out the number, but let's round it to approximately a thousand. And of those approximate thousand, uh, you've got approximately 500 deaths and injuries, if not more, because it was not a. And that's why they called the Battle of the Thousand Slain. So, what I'm throwing it out to you: What do you think the cabinet decides when they agree to those principles and they come back to? 
they got it for a night, uh, what do they decide to do? Are they going to give, after they agree to those central points, are they going to give all of the military communications, the orders, communications back and forth with General St. Clair, which could be embarrassing for the Washington administration. And remember, uh, Jefferson isn't yet uh, you know, on the opposite side. There are no separate parties. They're all basically working together uh, in 1792. The rifts will come later, or I should say the big rifts will come later. So here's the question once again. What do you think the cabinet does? Do they release all the records? Do they redact the records? Do they release only some? Um, do they go into a situation where they allow it to be inspected, inspected in camera? That's another option. So what do they do with all the, the written communications back and forth with uh, General Sinclair or other military files? So they, that's my question to you. They release a summary. That's another option. Right. And by the way, when we talk about these other examples, uh, you know, the answer differs depending upon the facts and the circumstances. But here for the St. Clair defeat investigation, uh, Washington makes a decision with the cabinet to release everything. Wow. So they recognize that they do not have to release everything. But uh, the, the point is that even though it was embarrassing for the Washington administration, he was forthcoming and he did not conceal anything. He released it all to the House who was doing this investigation. And ultimately, they vindicated St. Clair. They weren't happy about it, but they did an investigation and they did not find fault with St. Clair personally. Um, although they probably could have reached other alternatives or other conclusions. Um, they also could have criticized the way that he wasn't adequately supplied or not, not enough funding, etc. But uh, So what's the point? The point is that in this first instance where executive privilege was raised and the cabinet studied it, they decided to release all of the requested records. So that's the first instance of executive privilege, which sort of sets us up for the second instance of executive privilege. And I already told you when it would be. This is 1794, so two years later. And remember, 1794, French Revolution happened 1789. The French Revolution is getting very bloody. The, uh, the King of France and Marie Antoinette, if I'm not mistaken, they're executed in 1793. Now it's 1794, so it's gotten very bloody. The guillotine is getting a lot of use. And our ambassador to France is Gouverneur Morris. And what's happening in 1794? And the quick answer is you've got bigger shifts now with Democrats and Republicans. So this is two years later. And uh, so there's opposition because the Federalists generally um, you know, are more pro-Britain. And the Democrat Republicans or the Jeffersonian Republicans are more pro-French. And uh, things are getting, as we said, very violent in France. And the Democrat Republicans are, are asking for, that's what they want. They want the correspondence with Gouverneur Morris, who is our ambassador to France. And there are various reasons why they want that information. But uh, at the end of the day, um, you know, and we're eventually going to have Jay's treaty come up two years later. But uh, here's the, the question that I'm going to tee up for you, which is, if you are the president and you've got, and I'm sort of hinting at the answer, you have a violent situation in France going on. And I'll point out that Gouverneur Morris uh, was very open and vocal in his correspondence to the president, and also in his correspondence to the Secretary of State. So when Morris would write letters, he's got a big mouth, and he doesn't, uh, he's not shy about sharing his opinions, even if those opinions may not be politic or uh, the sort of thing that the, the French would necessarily want to see, uh, because he expresses, uh, you know, he's very clear and he's very uh, forthright with his opinions. So that's the background that the, the Congress is asking for Gouverneur Morris's uh, correspondence. Let me give you more background. So it's the Senate now that's asking for his correspondence. He was the minister uh, plenipotentiary to France. And um, 
the issue has to do with, again, it goes to the cabinet, so the cabinet has to debate and decide whether or not they're going to release his information. And the concern is that not only, uh, and let me give you some of the information that is in these materials before you tell me what you think he did, but some of the information that's in these letters, there are 39 letters that, uh, that he had written, actually a total of 40 letters that he had written to, um, you know, to the president or to the secretary of, of state uh, because he's got such a big mouth. There are situations where he's uh, giving his opinion about uh, what's happening in France. And uh, later, if we have time, ask me to give some examples of, of some of these things that could be very sensitive that are in No, his. tell us now. No, tell he, us uh, now. I would guess yeah. that Morris yeah. is outraged. Examples of, of things, and maybe this will give you the answer about what Washington and the cabinet decides to do. But maybe some examples of some of the items which are sensitive. Uh, and these are just quotes I'm going to give you. And if you go to statutesandstories.com, when I post this, you'll get to read these yourself. So here's an example where he's talking about the French in general. And he says, the best picture I can give of the French nation is that of cattle before a thunderstorm. <laughs> oh, my God. That was good. I'm going to, use, I'm going to reuse that. There, the, okay, so I say Washington will not release that. So, right, let me give you some more, and then you'll tell me what you think Washington does. Uh, so here he's talking about, he's complaining in, in another letter, December 21st of 1792, he's complaining about the French live a life of loose morals at home and attempt to transmit these ideas wherever they travel abroad. Then he remarks about his distaste for their contempt for religion and style of conversation and concludes his opinion as shared in Flanders and Germany. So in this paragraph, he is criticizing the French, he's criticizing their ethics, he's, he's criticizing their a contempt for religion, and then he's saying that the Germans and the Dutch in Flanders and in Germany agree with his remarks about their distaste for yeah. the French. I, I think you you cannot conduct diplomacy if you're going to disclose, because your ambassador is not going to be honest if he knows that it's going to be disclosed. I, I think you're you're reaching the right conclusion. Let me give you some more examples. In Morris's letters, he reveals that he's relied upon a network of unnamed informants to keep him abreast of these ever-changing events because things are moving fast in France. There's a lot of politics, and uh, you know, it's, a, it's a fraught, dangerous situation with the reign of terror in France. Also, he's expressing uh, interest in protecting Lafayette. Lafayette was almost a son to Washington and a very good close friend of Henry Knox and Alexander Hamilton. And uh, there's a time where uh, Lafayette got arrested and was being held in Germany in a Prussian jail. So there are conversations talking about Lafayette and his precarious situation. So there's there's lots of juicy information here that is very sensitive. So that brings us back to the question. So we did a little bit of a discourse or a, uh, you know, we went off on a sidetrack. But uh, now this is the question. Given that there's a lot of correspondence that this is discussing, I don't know that he gives the names of his agents, but it's describing the fact that he's using and he's probably paying handsomely people to get him information and data. So he's conducting yep. espionage through the French ambassador. This is Gruvener Morris. So raising the question again, what does the cabinet decide 1794 to do with all of this correspondence that was requested? And before you answer, let me read to you the way that Congress, here it was the Senate, <clears throat> you know, they would do a resolution where they would ask for information. So let me read you their resolution. So the Senate resolution says the following, resolved, and again, these are the sorts of things that we quote on statutes and stories, resolved that the President of the United States be requested to lay before the Senate the correspondence which have been had between the Minister of the United States at the Republic of France and said Republic and between said Minister and the Office of Secretary of State. So that is the Senate asking for information. And remember, 1792, the cabinet agreed that Congress can do inquests and also agreed that that includes written materials. So here's your question. 
and what does the cabinet decide to do with regard to Morris's papers in 1794? Exercise executive privilege. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but how? Are you going to not release any of it? Are you going to release some of it? Are you going to allow them to come in to do an in-camera review? No. Nothing. Zero. Release a summary. Release a summary. This is how executive privilege works. There's no right answer. It's a back and forth. So what they decided to do was redact. So of those 40 uh, letters... How do you redact I, in those times? <laughs> you just cut it out with a razor blade or what? No, use how do you black ink you know, with heavy uh, pencil. Uh, one of those grease pencils. They call That's it. an excellent question, how they redact it, and I, I think the answer, and I, I'd have to verify this, is that clerks would have to rewrite the letter, and the redacted language would be removed from the letter, which means if you're redacting 40 letters, it's going to take time to redact it, because you, re, you have to rewrite it. Wow. And put it in the press for publication, I mean, for reproduction, for several ministers, or more than one minister, or do you think they would just do it once, and there'd be one it's copy? It's just the committee in Congress. Yeah, I mean, th- these are things that the audience who's listening will say, you know what, that is a peculiar situation. They used to have this xerograph machines to make yeah, copies. because when uh, looking back at the passage of the income tax, that was an issue many years later. And that was 100 years later. Yeah, and yet there was an issue of typos in yep. all the different forms of the joint resolutions back, of Congress back, for the income tax. I remember when I was practicing law in New York yeah, about ditto 15 paper. years ago, you had to go to the printer for offering circulars and prospectuses. You, you know, you'd actually go to a printer and be in-house at a printing uh, facility. And pay for it as a student. <laughs> no, 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 as a, as a lawyer, and the, the issuers would pay for it. Uh, you were at a printing shop, and there were big printers, and you know you were on the side in the conference room uh, working on the paper, but you would then hand it in to the printers. Wow. That was not that long ago. I mean, I'm not that old. <laughs> Okay, Adam, go ahead. I'm not going to even remark about age. Yep, that's all, all right, it con- is. Continue on. I'm sorry, we we, we pushed you 100 years into the future. I'm agreeing with you both that there are different ways of sharing information or not sharing information. And what they decided here, 1794, was to release 39 of the 40 letters. And many of them had attachments and um, it wasn't just a letter. It was you know, things along with the letter. Uh, wow, so we're, I was completely wrong then. I said zero, so they actually, uh, you know, they actually shared uh, 39 out of the 40. They, were, they gave 39 of the 40, and they made 48 distinct redactions of those letters. And uh, sometimes it was only removing a name, and in one other case it was an entire letter that they withheld. But they, they redacted, so that's the first instance, 1794, of in the context of diplomacy and in the context of sensitive diplomacy. And by the way, the Attorney General sort of summarized his opinions in writing to Washington. And uh, let me just paraphrase him. Very much like Bob Barr just did. <laughs> That's the job of an attorney general is to give legal opinions. So the legal opinion by Randolph, and I'm paraphrasing some of it, was that some of these harsh expressions by Morris on the conduct of the rulers in France, which, if returned to that country, might expose him to danger. In other right. words, Morris might have been killed. Right. It was dangerous enough. So yep. uh, you know they, they made those redactions. And let me also tell you that um, of those cabinet members, which was Hamilton, Henry, Henry Knox, Secretary of War, and also uh, Jefferson, of those members of the cabinet, three of the four said, give nothing. They'll not even turn over anything over. Okay, so then I get to have a little bit of yep, credit. But George Washington <laughs> was an honest man, so he, he opened it up. Transparency. Transparent, yep. All okay. Right. I disagree. I would have gone. It was about limited transparency with the uh, 
forgot what I told you about, 40 or so redactions. Let me give you the exact number since this is recorded. 48 distinct redactions in 1794. And uh, that is the Morris example, the Grouper Morris, 1794. So uh, we're now going to skip ahead two more years. And now we're going to really be talking about Hamilton. And this is uh, my sweet spot where I, I love to go into great detail about Hamilton. But now this is Jay's Treaty and more background for everybody. And you can go to statutesandstories.com website and uh, read about uh, all the, the background with Jay's Treaty. But uh, this is a very partisan environment where the Jefferson Democrat Republicans are, are very in favor of France. Uh, they do not like this Jay's Treaty, which is a treaty that was negotiated by John Jay, who was the Supreme Court Chief, 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 Chief Justice. And we could talk about how it was peculiar to modern listeners that the Chief Justice was serving as a diplomat, but that was the case. They were not as busy back then. So John Jay had been sent to England. He negotiated a treaty, which was a very unpopular initially in the United States. And we've talked about how Hamilton was very active in writing these essays, the, the Camillus essays. Uh, and I forgot offhand the number, but in the neighborhood of 42 essays that uh, Hamilton wrote or he edited trying to defend Jay's treaty. And those essays, along with the support of other Federalists, swayed public opinion to, to support the treaty. Uh, and that probably avoided a war with England in the 1796 time frame, we eventually would go to war with England in 1812. So that's the Jay's Treaty environment. So what's going on? And the quick question is that the Democrat-Republicans are getting more support, and the Federalists are losing support, and they are asking for the diplomatic correspondence because they're trying to defeat the treaty. It goes through in the Senate, but the strategy that Jefferson and Madison come up with, and I think that Jefferson is getting, I won't say full of himself, but uh, you know, he's, he's, he's starting the resistance. You know, He realizes that uh, he disagrees with the Federalists, and he's not afraid to pound his chest and to exert his power, which he's gaining in authority. So the strategy that Madison and Jefferson come up with is, even though they disagree with the Senate and the, the adoption of the treaty, which only the Senate can ratify a treaty, they realize power of the purse, that they don't have to fund the treaty. So they're trying to wage a campaign to undermine that treaty with England by not funding it, which is what the House can do. So this is the background for Jay's treaty. Let me give you some more information. That so, was when the House ha had the uh, intestinal fortitude to exercise its constitutional powers. They try, and that's what you're going to see. So this is 1796, and Washington had given before I give away too much, though, I want to read to you from the requests that came, because sometimes it's important to look at the actual resolution about what the Congress or the House or the Senate is asking for. So this is Jay's Treaty, and I want to see if I can read to you the exact request that comes in through the... All right, so this is Edward Livingston. It's the New York City Republican, and that's interesting because Livingston knows Hamilton very well. In 1796, when this happens, Hamilton had left... He, did his term as the Secretary of Treasury, and he's now in private law practice. And as it turns out, Edward Livingston, and we've talked about the Livingston family on other nights, uh, is, is really siding now with Jefferson. He's become a Democrat-Republican or Jefferson-Republican. So the proposal that Livingston makes is he's trying to undermine the treaty, and I'm going to read it to you, is he thinks it's very desirable, and I'm quoting here from the the, the archives and from the, uh, these were done after the fact. They were originally written in newspapers, so the, the newspaper reporters would go into the, the Congress, and they would sort of transcribe the events of the day during the debates, and this is also from the, the records of the House and the Senate, and often the Senate would meet closed doors. But nevertheless, these are from, I'm trying to remember what it's called, these are from the, 
come to me in a second. These are from the you know the recorded transcripts or the recorded um, you know the, the, the summaries of, of what happens in the House and in the Senate. So uh, Livingston, and this is in the House, is describing how it would be desirable. He says very desirable that every document might be uh, provided that might tend to throw light on the subject that is before the House. And then he makes a resolution or a motion, and he says, uh, resolved, this is his motion, that the President of the United States be requested to lay before this House a copy of the instructions given to the Minister of the United States who negotiated the treaty with Great Britain, communicated by his message of the first instance, together with correspondence and other documents relative to said treaty. So what is Livingston asking for? He's asking for the letters back and forth between Jay and Washington, and also the instructions that Jay is getting, because the minister can't just make stuff up. He has to follow the guidance that he's given uh, before he leaves and the subsequent guidance that he gets uh, when he's trying to communicate with with the president and with the secretary of state, etc. And by the way, interestingly, Hamilton, during the time that the treaty was being negotiated, Hamilton played a big role, and he wasn't just the secretary of state. He was also sort of stepping on the turf of Jefferson, who was the secretary of, of state. So Hamilton was wore a big hat and was doing a lot of the, the job that Jefferson might have been doing, but Hamilton was, was playing a big role in this treaty, is the point. So Livingston is really asking for what he knows is going to be communications with Hamilton and with Washington. So that's the motion or resolution that Livingston makes. Uh, so the more information is just because he makes that resolution doesn't mean that gets voted on. So let me read a little bit more. So because Madison, who is a member of the House, he's the leader, if you will, of, of the House Democrat-Republicans, um, he um, you know, expresses the opinion that uh, that's asking for too much. So this is what Madison describes on the following day, because they didn't vote on that motion, because they wanted to study it. So on the following day, in deference, quote, to the gentleman whose opinions he paid the greatest respect, Livingston amended the motion by adding the following phrase, because they talked about it with each other before they voted. So Livingston amends his motion to say, we're going to allow accepting such of said papers as any existing negotiation may render improper to be disclosed. So in other words, Livingston amends the motion to say, we'll accept papers of the existing negotiation that may be improper to be disclosed. And then Madison steps in to say that he wished to change it even more, and he wants to change the motion to say that a more moderate amendment would be read, and Madison's version of the amendment would be, except so much of said papers as in his, meaning the president's judgment, it may not be consistent with the interests of the United States at this time to disclose. So Madison tries to amend the motion uh, to specifically refer to the president, and that it be in the president's discretion or in the interests of the United States uh, not to disclose at this time. So to give the president a, a back door to not disclose certain information. Uh, but the House, with lots of Republicans, Democrat Republicans, decides to go with the revised motion by Livingston, not the Madison version of the motion. So again, I'll read it to you. So the revised motion that was approved was, to paraphrase it, accepting of such papers as negotiations may render improper to be disclosed. So that now comes to the president and comes to the cabinet, and Washington has to decide what is he going to release in 1796. And remember that uh, the House is saying they're not going to fund the treaty, and uh, it's going to be ultimately a very close debate whether or not they fund it or not. And let me describe to you what does Washington always do when there's an issue, and he doesn't make the decision himself. He, wants he hands it off to Alexander Hamilton. 
Yeah, he's exactly right. So he wants, and Hamilton is no longer in the cabinet. So he writes a letter and wants to get Hamilton's advice. And I, I haven't yet figured this out yet. If Hamilton unsolicited provides, I'm going to read to you from a March 7th letter, 1796, that Hamilton sends to Washington. So I'm not sure if Washington had requested Hamilton's input or if Hamilton unilaterally provides his input anyway. So I'm going to read to you from what is Hamilton advising Washington. And remember that some of these letters that are being asked for are Hamilton's letters to John Jay and also Washington's correspondence back and forth, etc., and the Secretary of State's communications to England. So this is what Hamilton writes. And uh, if I bore you with too much in the way of quotes, tell me to speed it up. But you know, this is Hamilton analyzing in the context of a treaty. So remember, two years ago in the Morris communications, there was no treaty. It was just Morris sharing his views and sharing his insights and his opinions about France and what's going on in France. But now you've got actual executive-level communications between presidential aides or the Secretary of Treasury, as it was, with an ambassador. So this is arguably, you know, a more sensitive or potentially more sensitive information. So what does Hamilton write from New York? And let's think, in 1796, the president would have been in Philadelphia, but Hamilton is now practicing law back in New York. So March 7th, what does Hamilton write? So he says, Mr. Livingston's motion in the House of Representatives concerning the production of papers has attracted much attention. In other words, Hamilton's reading about this in the paper. The opinion of those who think here that the motion succeeds he goes on to say, it ought not to be complied with, because that in a manner of such a nature, the production of the papers cannot fail to start a new and unpleasant game. So Hamilton is saying that if you allow this information to get out there, it's going to cause a, quote, new and unpleasant game. This is important language. It will be fatal to the negotiating power of the government if it is to be a matter of course for a call of either House of Congress to bring forth all of the communications, however confidential. So that I think that's very insightful. Hamilton is saying if you allow this to become partisan, you're undermining the ability to negotiate treaties. Let me skip ahead. He goes on to give additional reasons. and one of my Well, you know what? I'd like to stop you there because the audience must be saying, well, it applies today. I believe that the, the issues that are going on today with Congress and the president is undermining the president's ability to, to deal with China trade and negotiate with North Korea because the, the opposition sees a house divided. So if they see a house divided, why should they sign a deal with Donald Trump if he's having so much, so many problems at home? So for the audience just to, to get the rules of the game don't change much, even though centuries pass. So, many. I'm going to avoid talking about politics today. No, I was not eliciting an, uh, a response from you. I was just saying it so that the Chatting audience... with the audience. Yeah, so that the audience can pretty much connect huge dots on how important... These, these explanations are on your part so they can associate it with today because these the rules still apply. Alexander Hamilton's right on the money. And I'm going back to where we started at the beginning of the conversation. Be careful, and this is what I believe one of your prior... Uh, I'm horrible with first names, but I believe we were talking about the last hour. Be careful what you ask for because although the facts are going to be different and the precise situation will be different, you know, be careful about... Uh, you know, Parties coming in and out of power, so be careful what you ask for. But here, Hamilton, in the context, and let's keep in mind, what is the context? This is 
These are communications with the president and with the secretary of state about an actual treaty. Can you use this, these diplomatic correspondence and instructions to your diplomat, uh, this is Jay over in, in England, can this be released to play a partisan game? So how does Hamilton analyze it? And before I read you more of Hamilton's letter of March 7th, one of my favorite historians is Chernow. And I should probably mention some of the books that I'm using to, uh, to inform this, uh, this hour. Uh, but uh, in fact, let me do that real quickly. So some of the books I'm using today are uh, Mark Rosell is a professor, and one of the books he wrote is called The Dilemma of Secrecy in Democratic Accountability. And I, I'm also referring, by the way, to some law review articles, and we can talk with that about what a law review article is. But there's an important law review article written in 1974 by uh, Archibald Cox. So some of this, if we have time later, I'll be talking about some of the theory behind executive privilege, and that's a law review article by Archibald Cox, and maybe we can talk about who he is. So heading back now to um, Chernow. So Chernow, in his book where he discusses this Jay's Treaty scenario, you know, he mentions that Hamilton being Hamilton, he gives 13 reasons. So I'm not going to give you all the reasons that Hamilton elicits, but I'm going to sort of summarize them and quote selections from some of Hamilton's detailed analysis. But Hamilton goes on to say that uh, the executive has no cases on which to judge the propriety of a compliance with it. In other words, he's saying we don't have an exact uh, precedent to apply here. He goes on to say, it cannot therefore, without forming a very dangerous precedent, comply. So Hamilton is recognizing that if we allow this diplomatic correspondence to be released, even though it's the House who wants it, it would be a very dangerous precedent. He goes on to say, it does not occur that the view of the papers asked for can be relative to any purpose. Let me make sure I do this slowly so you follow me. He goes on to say, it does not occur that the papers that are being asked for can be relative to, quote, any purpose of the competency of the House of Representatives, but that for an impeachment. What does that mean? Hamilton is saying, um, you know, what they're asking for is to fund a is to fund a treaty, but the treaty has already been adopted. So Hamilton is saying that because the House has no business in approving a treaty, the Senate already approved it. He's saying it's not within their quote competency to ask for these records, except if they're doing an impeachment. So we, we can come back and analyze that and peel it apart later on. He goes on to, in the same letter to talk about how, George, I'm sorry, Mr. President, that this is but a hasty and crude outline of what has uh, struck me uh, as the knowledgeable course. Uh, for a while, a too easy compliance may be mischievous. Uh, I won't read it all. He goes on to say that an unqualified refusal uh, is what he's basically recommending, that you do not give it. And the reason why he's saying don't give it is because the House has no business asking for this information because the treaty has already been approved. So that's what Hamilton says. So let me lay out the question for you. At 1796, Jefferson and Madison are trying to defund the treaty, which was approved by the Senate. We could also talk about does the U.S. have credibility on the line? If you approve a approve a treaty and the House doesn't want to comply with it, you know what are the consequences there? So here's the question. <clears throat> What does Washington decide to do? He's getting Hamilton's opinion. He also gets the opinion of others in his cabinet. We know Jefferson's opinion is going to be very different. But uh, what does Washington decide to do? And just walking us back, in the St. Clair defeat, what did he do? Help me out. What did he, oh, my God. He gave all the documents, yeah. right? In the Morris situation, 1794, he redacted. Now the House is asking for diplomatic correspondence. What does Washington decide to do? Give him nothing. Basically, that's what Hamilton is saying. Give them nothing because they have no business, except in the case of an impeachment, asking for correspondence after a treaty has been approved. It's not in their jurisdiction as the House. Manny, do you agree? Give them nothing? I would definitely say zero. 
Okay, you are both correct. And let me read you now from Washington's letter. So this is March 30th, 1796. This is the response that Washington writes, and I'm going to paraphrase, I'll quote in places. This is his answer to the House of Representatives who wants to use this information to uh, not approve the funding and to undermine the Jays Treaty. So here you go. Washington writes on May 30, March 30th, 1796, the nature of foreign negotiations requires caution and their success must often depend on secrecy. He goes on to say that it would be impolitic for this might have a pernicious effect on future negotiations. And by the way, a lot of this is coming from Hamilton's letter. He goes on to say the necessity of such caution and secrecy was one of the cogent reasons for vesting the power of making treaties in the president with the advice and consent of the Senate. So he's saying Senate can get this information, but I'm not giving it to the House. He goes on to say that this would establish a dangerous precedent. By the way, where's he getting that from? That's the Hamilton letter from, I think I said it was March 7th. This is March 30th, Washington's response. He goes on to say that it does not occur that the inspection of the papers asked for can be relative to, quote, any purpose under cognizance of the House of Representatives. And the way Hamilton had phrased it was it's not within the competency of the House. Washington changes it to say it's not within the cognizance of the House of Representatives. He goes on to say, accept that for an impeachment. So just as Hamilton had written, if they were doing an impeachment, then this is something that he doesn't think he'd be able to refuse. And we can talk about the theory of how executive privilege works, and we can talk about some of the constitutional powers uh, and the division of labor and the separation of branches. Well, uh, Go ahead. Let me, uh, the question I have is, what if the, the, the same argument cannot be used if the Senate had asked for that information? Because okay, excellent point. Be, the basis of this letter that Washington writes with the advice of Hamilton was, well, I'm not going to give it to the House. Right. And by the way, the Senate already approved the treaty. Right. The Senate approved the treaty, and that's an important footnote I left out. They had access to the information when the Senate approved it. Okay. They didn't get the documents, but they had access to it. So let me read the conclusion of the letter, and you're exactly right. This is at the end of the letter. Washington writes, therefore, it is perfectly clear to my understanding that the assent of the House of Representatives is not necessary to the validity of the treaty. It goes on to say that a just regard to the Constitution and to the duty of my office under all the circumstances forbid compliance with your request. And he points out that the Senate already had access to this information. Right. Leave me alone. The answer is no. Here it is. He goes on to say, in fact, all the papers affecting negotiation with Great Britain were laid before the Senate. Right. So that is your answer, that with Hamilton and Washington studying this and they wanted that treaty to get through, they didn't want the political games over a treaty, they give nothing and the Senate had already had access to it in the prior year. Wow. Well, that's a good, uh, yeah. And that, I again, applies to today. It's the same thing. Well, in the case of Attorney General uh, Barr, uh, he is not allowed to give the redacted materials because of uh, federal statute. So there you are. Yeah, in other words, uh, back in the, the difference, the great difference is it's now illegal. Back then, it was a, a judgment. Yeah, call. but now the the redacted materials today are unlawful to be made public. Well, because they come from a grand jury. Yeah. Well, uh, Adam, do you know if there were grand juries in those days? Yeah, there were, yes. There were? Yes. There were grand juries set up just like that? When there was an indictment, yes. Wow. Right, by the way, that's going to lead us into the fifth example, if we have time. We'll talk about the Barr, not the Barr, but the Burr trial. But before we get to Burr in 1807, we've got the XYZ affair. So remember, I've been giving examples every two years. The St. Clair incident, 1792, Washington releases the documents. The Morris 
uh, correspondence, 1794, he redacts. The Jays Treaty, 1796, he withheld, withheld, and he gives nothing. So now we're skipping again two years. Yeah. Executive privilege seemed in those early yeah. years to come up every two years. Although they didn't, by the way, this is more background, they didn't call it executive privilege. That, here, maybe this is an unfair question for me to ask the two of you. When do you think the term, and I'm putting air quotes on, when do you think the term executive privilege was first used describing this concept? So, uh, 1974 by Archibald Cox, special prosecutor in Watergate. <laughs> Let me back you up about 16 years. All right. That was a good guess, though. 58? Right. In the 1950s, the first time that the concept of executive privilege was used with that terminology uh, was during the Eisenhower administration, and that was Eisenhower's attorney general, and I'll, I'll figure it out uh, before we finish tonight. That's the first time that executive privilege, um, and by the way, here's total aside, uh, but uh, you had the... Here, here's a question for the two of you. Uh, well, what were the big controversy, the big hearings that were being conducted about Red Scares in the 19... 19- oh, McCarthy trials. In No, that so was after In the McCarthy. McCarthy trials or McCarthy hearings, mm-hmm. right? Senator McCarthy, Joseph McCarthy, uh, is trying to get access to um, correspondence and uh, I don't know exactly, but he's trying to get access to the Secretary of Defense back then was Charles Wilson. Mm-hmm. And he wanted the correspondence and information um, relating to red scares and red, uh, you know, communists hiding within the military. So he, he's looking for, during the McCarthy hearings, uh, he's looking for, he's looking for correspondence, etc., with uh, Charles Wilson, Secretary of Defense, Sec Def. Uh, he's also wanting employees to come testify. And Eisenhower, and we can try to avoid talking about modern history. So I'm going to limit myself to. Okay. Yeah. Go back. Go, go back. Go back. I don't want to go too, too close, but so this is Eisenhower, and 40 times he asserts executive privilege, and it was his attorney general who comes up with the concept of uh, calling it executive privilege, and no other president has used it as many times as Eisenhower did. Um, maybe later I can give you examples of the other presidents and how many times they've used it. Um, so what else did I want to tell you? So we, we did a little... Uh, well, uh, I, I'm interested, yeah. since we talked about it earlier in the day, uh, the situation with Burr... Uh, Maybe you can uh, to tell us a little bit more, because uh, more for podcast purposes, because you would have to have listened to this whole two, three hours together. But uh, there were accusations about Burr being a murderer. Are you implying those indictments or no? Okay, we, we will definitely get to Burr, but the quick answer is Burr was on trial for treason, and he was in trial, we'll get to this, in 1807, because and I don't know all the specifics. Yeah, because Jefferson handed his guts. No, no, no. He was trial for murder. Yet he was on trial for uh, trying to uh, perhaps uh, perhaps pick off uh, the, the territories that these weren't states yet. This is after the Louisiana Purchase, and uh, arguably he's working with uh, you know, some of the generals, one of the, the head generals. Uh, and there was land that was owned by Spain, and uh, maybe to foment issues in that territory. And he may have also the allegation was the treason allegation was that he's trying to take this territory and uh, make himself the king or the leader. Of this territory to have it break away or sever or secede from the United States, and a lot of the allegations weren't exactly clear. And we'll, we'll, we'll get they, to they that. See, yeah, they seem kind of outlandish, considering. No, no, no. he was he was a bad guy. He he was trying to set up a, a, his own country. That's the wow. allegation. I, I think that's, that's the allegation, but that never that never held true, did it? Well, let me skip ahead then. So what happened in 1807, and this is why executive privilege is going to come in, but I want to do the XYZ affair first. Yep, okay. But the, well, remember, you only got four minutes. 
Scott, how much time do we have? Let's see. Four minutes. You're down to four minutes. Oh, we're down to four. You're right. I didn't realize time has been flying. So let's finish with Burr then. So 1807, and uh, what happens is that the defense team for Burr asks for letters that were written to Jefferson. So they want Jefferson's letters. This is letters to the president uh, that would provide a defense by Burr, because Burr wants to show that uh, the letters that were written to the president are being misapplied and they're being misquoted. So he wants a letter written by the the head of the one of the head generals to to uh, Jefferson, and Jefferson has to decide whether or not he's going to release this correspondence. And uh, the way it comes is a subpoena dicus tecum. What is a subpoena dicus tecum? Uh, when a lawyer through a court gets an order or a subpoena that you have to give documents. So a subpoena is sent, and the trial judge in this treason case is John Marshall. John Marshall is the Supreme Court Chief Justice, but he's the trial judge in this case. And uh, the request is by the defense team that the president should have to release certain correspondence because the defense needs it to prove that he's not guilty. So here's the question. Does Jefferson decide to release it? And uh, or does he decide that, uh, I'll be careful with my language, that this is uh, confidential communications with my generals and I'm not going to give it to you, even though there's a criminal case where you need it in order to provide a defense? What does Jefferson decide to do? Well, I think he hands it over. He doesn't. He he takes the country first. Ed seems to think that he stood on principle. I think he didn't like Burr. He so. didn't like Burr. Let me give you more background before you answer, so this isn't totally fair. But the way the subpoena was written, and I should read it to you, the subpoena says uh, to come and deliver it in person, and I'm paraphrasing, or to give the letter. So Jefferson has a choice. He can either be under subpoena and release the and testify in the case or release the documents. So what does question is, what does Marshall do? And Marshall approves the subpoena. So the subpoena goes to Jefferson. Jefferson either has to come into court and testify or release the documents. And here you have the question, does Jefferson come to testify or does he release these letters? I think he releases the letters. He does neither and claims executive privilege, not, not with those words. Okay, so the quick answer is that Jefferson does not want to testify, so he does not testify, but he does release the letters, and uh, because the letters are powerful in the defense, uh, you know, Burr gets acquitted, and uh, also what Jefferson says is that he disagrees that he should be required to do this, but he doesn't want to create a constitutional crisis, and also he probably would have looked bad politically if he withholds documents and someone gets held guilty, gets convicted because of his refusing to release evidence. Mm. So he does release the documents. He says he's sort of objecting. He disagrees with Marshall's opinion, but he does let the documents be released, but he he effectively says to his attorney general, I'll let you decide if there's anything in here that needs to be redacted. You can do that, but I'm delegating getting it to my attorney general, and all the requested letters get released, Burr gets acquitted, and uh, then he moves on to France to get out of the country. Well, that ends the show on a constitutional crisis, very synonymous to the most recent uh, allegation that we are presently under a constitutional crisis. All humbug. Thank you very much, Adam. And uh, we're now, um, it's the end of the Statues and Stories show. Adjourned. Uh, we are adjourned. Stay Thank free, you, my Adam. friends, and stay tuned for Chris Ann Hall's Mother's Day episode. Take care on Constitution Day, Legal Day, Stories, Statutes and Stories Day, and the Concrete Conservative, WSQF 94.5. Stay free, my friends. FM and Key Biscayne. Attention Patriots.